So verse 1, then he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. So Jesus is back on the parables right here. This is interesting. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them, last saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, that would be the religious leaders, sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and went away. In this part of Mark's gospel, we just have these series of confrontations between Jesus and the different religious leaders. And they're here for us to learn from, for sure. This event is recorded for us in the other gospels. And and other gospels give us a little more insight in that the religious leaders actually answered the question as well. Like, what do you think he'll do? Well, he'll destroy him and give it to another. Jesus in the other gospels says he'll even give it to another nation. So he makes it more personal about Israel as the nation rejecting him. He also says that the stone, he's the stone which the builders rejected. And if you don't fall on that stone, Jesus being the rock with brokenness, he's going to roll you. He's going to roll you. So there's more to this parable in the other Gospels that give it a little more light for us than what Mark gives us. But sticking to the context of what Mark gives us, we know that this obviously a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. In this case, we know this is symbolic of the history of Israel. In fact, if you look at Stephen's message to the religious leaders in Acts chapter 7, he recounts Jewish history, and he talks about how they rejected the prophets, and they killed them, and they persecuted them. They built tombs to the prophets, even though they killed them, and now they rejected the son. It's parallel, synonymous with what Jesus is saying here. This parable gives us the history of Israel, how the religious leaders throughout that 1,500 years of their covenant with God under what was known as the Mosaic Covenant that time and time again, they rejected the prophets. The kings rejected the prophets. The leaders rejected the prophets. They often killed the prophets that God sent them. The fullness of all their rejection of 1,500 years, which is a really, really long time. 1,500 years is a really long time. Think about this. As a nation, we're like, what, 240 years old, 230 years old as a nation. The colonial era, a couple more hundred, couple hundred more years, the colonial era. That's not even one-third of how long Israel existed as a nation in their covenant with God in the promised land. 1,500 years is a long time, and it's a long history of the leaders rejecting the voice of the Lord to them when they're in a covenant with him. So all those major prophets, all those minor prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets recorded for us in the historical books like Elijah and Elijah, and them being rejected and other prophets being struck and beaten. We read about these things, Jeremiah thrown in the pit, all these different things. And this parable clearly illustrates that, what the history of Israel had done to their, the prophets, like the messengers to collect from the vineyard. God referred to Israel as his vineyard in the Old Testament. So that interpretation interprets itself from the Old Testament. 
And here now the son, the son obviously is a reference to Jesus, who is the heir of all things. We know that. They're rejecting him. So this parable, it says they went away knowing he was referring to them. They're, they're the villains in this parable, and they knew it. They interpreted the parable and what the right application would be from the story. He interpreted it. They're in unison in that if you harmonize the Gospels. And they went away furious because they were the villains in this parable, and they knew it. See, some parables, when Jesus talked them, people didn't even get it. They just didn't get it at all. Like he spoke in a parable in a group setting, people that didn't have hearts to receive or respond to the Lord, they're like, huh? But this parable, they did get it. And they realized we're the bad guys in this parable. Context in place. I love what Psalm 118 says, the psalm that is the, quoted here in verse 10. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. When they would build a building, they'd use a chief cornerstone. Of course, in biblical times, it's a chief cornerstone. It all starts with that. You get the cornerstone right, the rest of the property is built right. Now, I don't know a lot about building houses. I just know they all fall apart. I just listened to a message from Pastor Chuck 40 years ago talking about no sooner they built this sanctuary, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, on Fairview Avenue, within a few years it's fallen apart in all these different places. It's the law of entropy. (laughs) So building things right and building practically is... I've never been a construction guy or a builder. Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, of course, is uh, an engineer in his background and even recently has taken classes in civil engineering. He's doing paperwork and college work on soils and how you build properly. There's a lot to building things properly. Like when I go across the Coronado Bridge, I always think like, who built this and why does it stand? And don't look over the side. When I look at architecture and buildings, I just go like, how is just amazing how you do this stuff? And of course, they talk about Solomon's temple and being fortified and then you know, Herod the Great fortifying it, and even the whole Matthew 24 begins with the apostles saying to Jesus, look at the temple, these stones, and how they built these massive stones, and they're just perfectly fit, and to this day, we marvel at the technology of ancient civilizations. You know, it's, it's amazing, but again, we're created in God's image, so the human mind is the greatest computer on earth and has capacity for great things. Unfortunately, as we know, we're marred by sin. But when building something, you've got the plumb line, and the Bible uses a lot of references to the right foundation. The apostles are the foundation of the church. Jesus is the foundation of the church. The apostles are the foundation of the church. Cornerstone, plumb line, all these things exist in biblical terminologies, and here Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And this is what I know as a simple man that wasn't very good in shop class in, in high school and just didn't do much for building anything. I appreciate when people build stuff. I didn't, I didn't build surfboards. I broke them. People ask me, you ever want to make boards? No, I break them. Like, I literally have never been a craftsman. I've just never, I'm fascinated by architecture, but never been there. So from my perspective, the application is so simple. The cornerstone, which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. So they rejected, he, Jesus is the cornerstone of everything for Israel, and they rejected him. So the very foundation and the very cornerstone of how the nation was supposed to be and all that they did and how, how they were supposed to be individually in their faith and their relationship with God. If you reject Christ, you don't, you're, you're, the house you're going to build, it's going to come to nothing. It's like Jesus gave the parable in the Sermon on the Mount where he talked about, right, the, you build on the rock, you build on the sand, the storms come, the floods come, and those who built their house on the word of God, that house stood against the vehement storms and those who did not, it was washed away like the sand. Again, foundation, building. So what I would say to me and for us, the application here is Jesus is making clear in the context that they rejected him based upon prophecy of scripture that they would, that he's the chief cornerstone. 
Now, we just saw in Colossians, he's holding the universe together. Like, all things are made by him and for him, but he's literally holding the universe together. The reason we don't just blow up the atoms in our body, the protons and neutrons and all this stuff, how it works, he's holding us together. Jesus is holding the whole universe together. Everything in the physical world, the things that are seen, we know that all, all things that are, that are made invisible, he made. All things made visible, he made. And the visible is held together by the invisible. And Jesus holds it all together right to the very atom. He holds it together. And this entire universe, so anything you can look at through Hubble's telescope or the microscopic world, everything you can see, Jesus Christ is holding it together. And then we're born with a purpose. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows the times and seasons we'll be born. He knows the plans that he has for us. It's God who wills and works with us for his good pleasure through us. We know that he's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So when you think that the whole universe, black holes and supernovas and asteroids and comets and everything just doing like a master clock, the entire universe, Jesus is the cornerstone holding the universe together of all we see. Why wouldn't we trust him as the cornerstone to hold us together in the very purpose of our life? See, when Jesus has supremacy in our life, he is the cornerstone. And everything that he would build of our life, because our life becomes a legacy, we know that. Most of you have been to a memorial service, at least one. And you've seen a slideshow that's a remembrance of someone's life. Or you've got a bulletin that says, this is so-and-so when they're born, when they died. Here's Psalm 23 on the back or a song they liked. They might play Leonard Skinner Freebird in the slideshow. You just, I've seen it all. You know, they might display tennis rackets because they're a great tennis player. They might display owls because they collected stuffed owls. For real, true story. Okay, they, they might be someone who just served the Lord. And you might have Bibles that they had on the table that they used in their personal devotions for years. There's a legacy when we step into eternity, and there's a story when we step into eternity. And there's only two stories that can be written. One, where Jesus is the cornerstone, and the entire part of our life, the building that's our life, everything that was built of our life, is a reflection of being connected to Jesus, the cornerstone, and is built properly and in order. Because God is a God of order. And it's an amazing story of faith and obedience and fruit and the kingdom, and it's glorious. And you can go to the bookstore at Calvary Chapel and Go on the biography aisle and read books about all these different people and whether they're current people or people from the past. And you can read about people who gave their life to Christ and Jesus was their cornerstone and all these incredible things happened through their life as they let Christ live and work in their life and transform them from glory to glory in character, in obedience, and in calling. And it's a beautiful thing. I love biographies. The biographies are my favorite. They're just Christian biographies are my absolute favorite when you see people that were all in with Jesus, so whether it's a Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael or, or Pastor Chuck and Kay Smith or whatever, I just, I love, I love to read about people who let Jesus become the cornerstone and then their life is this incredible legacy. And when we think about Jesus building our life, this is what we need to think about because there's young people here tonight and I want to speak definitively to you. The world rejects, the builders of the world, they want to build the Tower of Babel. The builders of the world want to build their own tower and the world wants to unify their languages so they can all build something together apart from God. That's the way it was. That's the way it is. And that's the way it will be in the end. Because what gets destroyed at the end of the age? Mystery Babylon gets destroyed at the end of the age in the book of Revelation. That final attempt yet again where all the people of the world come together to create their own kingdom devoid of God. They reject the one who holds the whole universe together the cornerstone of the universe, they reject him holding the atoms to the supernovas. They reject him 
and won't let him be the cornerstone of their life whose very breath is in his hands. We don't want to be those people. We got one life to live, and we want Jesus to be the cornerstone. And the sooner he's a cornerstone and building every portion of your life in this wonderful plan that he has for your life and this work of art, poema, that you're meant to be, the better it is because you don't know how long your life is anyways. And the question arises from the psalm itself, and Jesus quotes it here, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And that is the question. The Lord has a plan. This was the Lord's doing. It's always been the plan that the whole universe will revolve around Jesus. He's infinite outside of time. And when time was made, he, was, he made it, and it's made for him. He's before time, and he's outside of time, and he's after time. And he's the chief cornerstone of the universe. But the choice for every human being is whether or not he's the chief cornerstone of our heart and our lives and the purposes and the plans of our lives. And like he has the plan. He has the purpose in everything. And the question says, it's the Lord's doing. It was always the plan that he'd save the world through the redemption through the Son, the Father. There's a question mark, and, and it is marvelous in our eyes, question mark. And I like that because it asks this question, and I ask this question, is not what the Lord does in your life marvelous? That's a, that's a question that we all must answer by faith. Do you believe that everything that has happened in your life has, can, and will work together for good? From the highest mountaintop experiences to the lowest valleys. Do you believe that it's marvelous when you're rejected and slandered and persecuted and lied about and afflicted and in great sorrow and anguish of life? Do you believe through faith that it is marvelous and that God is good and will work together for good? See, because if you can answer that question, yes, you're going to do fine from here to eternity. But if you can't, watch out. Because the ultimate test of faith is that we trust God in his character and in his plans. And you look at David and all that King David went through 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before these words were spoken. You have all that he went through and how he loved the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. He leads me by green pastures to rest, by still waters. He refreshes me. He anoints my head and prepares a table for me in the presence of enemies. He saw it all, and yet he went through all these things where he you know, had his beautiful bride early on and then his father-in-law trying to kill him and then running for his life, slandered, maligned. He acts like a madman. At one point, everything's taken from him when the Amalekites take everything he had in Ziglag and, he's like, and his own people are about to turn on him and take his life. And it says he strengthened himself in the Lord. And you look at his whole life. But what does he say in all the highs and lows of committing adultery and having his buddy killed in battle and at the least first-degree manslaughter, really probably premeditated murder and, and all those things. And yet he said, God is merciful. But above all else, he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And God said, I love David. He has a heart after me. David understood the character of God. David understood that God is good and God does good. 
and he's the good shepherd. So when David wrote Psalm 23 and said, the Lord is my shepherd, he's just speaking prophetically what Jesus would say in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. David saw Jesus a thousand years before he came. And how would David even know he wants to build the temple? The Lord says, you're not building me the temple. I'm going to build a house for you. From your descendant will come an everlasting kingdom, and of his kingdom will be no end. Speaking of Jesus Christ, who would come through Mary, a descendant of David, a thousand years later. So, WG, this is the main application here. We can meditate upon the Lord, and we can sing songs like Danny singing, and we can listen to praise music, and we can meditate on the scriptures, and all that the word of God declares to us is that God is good. And he's going to do good. Genesis 1, and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. Because God is good. And and everything God does is good. There's no injustice. There's no shadow of turning with the Father of lights. God is good. And we can trust him. Let Jesus truly be the cornerstone of our lives. And let us answer that question, is it marvelous in our eyes? Let us say affirmatively, absolutely, yes, It is. We don't have to rejoice in the trials and the tribulations and the heartaches, but we can learn to draw closer to the Lord in those circumstances and say, God is good. And may you and I on our deathbed in our last moment look up at the person close to us and say, God is good. May that be a great declaration in our last breath. Son, daughter, grandson, daughter, friend, stranger. You just don't know what it's going to be like. But if you can turn that person and say, God is good, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, then that's it. That's good. I want to be able to say this side of eternity and that side that, yes, Lord, what you're doing, it is marvelous in our eyes, and you are the chief cornerstone. And the wisest thing I ever did was submit my life and surrender my life to you and pass from death to life and let you work in my life to produce good things and to make the world a better place and to make me more like you and to prepare me for eternity so I can be with you and serve you. And we say yes and amen. Is it marvelous in our eyes? I hope it is. We read on the work of the Lord. See, they rejected. We're, we're all for it. We're here on Tuesday night. We're all for the work of the Lord. But, you know, we are tested. There's things that will test us. The devil wants to move us from believing God is good. Don't let him move you. Stand on the cornerstone. Then, here's another then, verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is it? Is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said, answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Most of us are very familiar with this event, too. Pharisees and Herodians, we don't know any, there's really no historical record about the Herodians other than their names identify with Herod, the Herods, which were Roman, under Roman authority to rule. Herod the Tetrarch in the north ruled over a fourth. His brother ruled over the far north, you know, Caesarea Philippi. And then Herod the Great was her grandfather, the first of the Herods who killed the babies, trying to kill Jesus. And then you see the other Herod, Herod Agrippa, in the book of Acts, 
Well, the one Herod dies, and the other Herod Agrippa is the one that Paul stands before later on. They're, they had like about three-generation run, three-generational run, you know, like having authority with Rome. They're in the Promised Land. They're Idumeans. They're from the region of Gaza, but they're educated in Rome. So those Pharisees who are self-righteous and, and take from God, they added to God's word that supplanted God's word, and the Herodians. So it's, it's safe to say that they had something to do with collecting taxes because they represent Rome, and they're going to get in with taxes. And by the way, for what it's worth, always pay your taxes. When they say death and taxes, they mean it. My sister rebuilding her life, they're coming for her. They, they know. So real simple application, Romans 13, pay your taxes. Know what you owe and pay it. Because if you owe the government money, almost any government in the world, they're, they're going to get your money. So pay your taxes. And it's biblical. The Bible tells you, render to whom taxes are due, tribute due, render it to them. Different people oppress different people. All it is different people oppressing other people, right? Somebody rules over someone else, and sometimes it's favorable, sometimes it's extremely disfavorable, but people just rule over someone and take from them. That's, it's taxes. It's the way it works. There's nothing new under the sun. Watching a History Channel special about the rise of the agri-society in the Central America, you know, during the Mayans and stuff. It's just one group of Mayans stealing from another and taxing them and taking their tribute. It's just nothing new under the sun. Spain comes, they do it to the Aztecs. It's just da 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 You know, it just goes on and on. So general rule of thumb, Bible makes it very clear. If you can avoid problems with civil government and obey government, you should. The Bible tells us pray for leaders, respect leaders, and pay your taxes. And if you move from that and you get problems from that, then that's your business, you know? So I, I don't know what that looks like in our generation. I often ask myself, would I have taken on King George in the 1700s like the colonists did? I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. All I know is I don't want any trouble with Big Brother. I, I know what I owe, and I got to get accountant, and I pay what I owe, and I pay it on time, and that's just the way it is. But, you know, the thing about Caesar is that's a temporal government. Now, when Caesar says, I'm God over your God, of course, that's where we run into, you know, the situation where we render Caesar with Caesar's, but what's God is God, and we bow the knee to Jesus. And when Peter and John were threatened to not speak in the name of Jesus, they're like, hey, we're going to keep preaching because you decide what you think is right, but there's a higher law, and there's always a higher law, and we know that. The higher law over the entire universe is Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. The higher law is that the gospel is preached in every kingdom to all peoples. That's the higher law. However, we would uh, usurp the laws of men that would hinder that or try and prevent that, we hold the high ground. So where there's believers all over the Middle East and in Asia— that are breaking civil government laws that suppress and forbid the preaching of the gospel, we want to support those people because they're, they're our higher law. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That is the final authority. Jesus is the final authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. When Brother Andrew smuggles Bibles in Eastern Europe back in the day and all the things that the, the Russian underground church did during the Iron Curtain and all throughout Eastern Europe. And even to this day, the Chinese underground churches and the heavy persecution they're going through right now, the persecutions in, in Southeast Asia right now, in Vietnam, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, all these places. It's just, it, it is what it is. So we render to Caesar things that are Caesar, but the moment Caesar says, I'm God, that's the end of it. You know, like, but I say this, if you're ever in trouble with Caesar, let it be for the gospel. Not for not paying taxes. If you're incarcerated and in prison for your faith in Jesus Christ, the blessings are upon you. If you're incarcerated or in trouble because you didn't pay your taxes, <laughs> well, the Lord will still show you mercy, but 
the government gets their money. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar. Be good citizens. Mind your own business. Be a blessing to community, to the nation. Be part of the solution. And God is God. God's the ultimate authority. And they couldn't trap Jesus. The real thing was to try and trap him. He's like, why do you test me? See, their question's not even sincere. But there's a good lesson. We're subject to civil government in this human experience. Otherwise, we have anarchy. I don't want anarchy. You don't want anarchy. Do you know what anarchy would look like with 24 million people in Southern California where criminals have better firearms than the police forces? It doesn't look good, just so you know that. I mean, the laws for the everyday citizen and the police force, their firepower is less than the criminals that are all over Southern California. And we've got three days of food and water in Southern California for 24 million people. We do not want anarchy. I like the mayors. I like city councils. I like the governor. I like living in California. I don't mind paying more for gas here. I choose to live here. If I want to pay less for gas, I can move to Arkansas. So can you, right? Okay, so it's just like, just render to Caesar things that are Caesar and to God things that are God. If I'm ever in trouble with the law, I want it to be for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for no other reason. Yes and amen. We read on. And I'll come visit you if you're in trouble for not paying your taxes. But I'd rather come visit you for, because you're in trouble for the gospel. I might even be with you. <laughs> you just never know. James gets beheaded. Peter gets released by angels. You just never know. That's another study. Verse 18. Then, here's our third then. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. I, just, I can never get past that. That's their calling card. It's like a Sadducee walks up to you as his business card. Hey, I'm Fred Sadducee. And there it is. It's like, we don't believe in the resurrection. Like, what kind of religious leader who has the Old Testament doesn't believe in the resurrection? Because the Bible clearly taught it. Their, 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 their calling card is they don't believe the Old Testament, but they're religious leaders. But they have lots of company in our country right now and all these liberal churches that reject the gospel and the person, the historical, biblical person of Jesus Christ. What are you going to do? They're, they're there. And then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. Then the second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left her no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, first of all, with this question, let's just ask ourselves. Do we think this ever happened once in human history? Let's just ask that question. Do we think ever, under the Mosaic law, ever in human history, that a woman had seven brothers as her husband? See, this is what men do. This is where you get bad theology and bad thinking. When you sort of come to the word of God, the presupposition of some kooky belief you have, and you become the accuser of God's word, the judge of God's word, rather than God's word judging you. See, these guys would have been wise just to read Daniel 13, where it says there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust and the accountability for them or that the resurrection promised in Psalm 16. But they're not those kind of people. They're the kind of people who, rather than receiving God's word and taking God at his word, they just have a God of their own mind and concoction. That's the dangerous thing about human beings when we're left to ourselves, that apart from being born of the Spirit and being illuminated, to receive the revelation of God's word of himself in his word, because we, we can't find fulfillment in living selfishly, so we always find a cause. We tend to find a cause. You know, there's so many causes out there. Because we're so unfulfilled as a human being when we're just self-centered. Most people have a cause, and they're over the top for their cause without the Lord. We see that. 
How are so, like people just, they have a cause. So if their cause is stop this president or stop the last president or stop the next president, that's their cause. And that's all they can think about. That's all they can tweet about. That's all they can post about. They can't help themselves. I was at the post office in Huntington Beach about a month ago, uh, dropping off the mail, the one right there on, on Atlanta. And I saw a guy out front, uh, well, he's asking for it, and he had a sign and it said, restore respect for the, the office of the presidency. And his point was, we need to respect the office of the presidency. Not as the president, just the authority of the presidency, like respect uh, first responders, like that kind of thing, like just respect the authority. And I just, it was the most random thing about I'm driving by, and I see this woman just yelling at him, screaming at him. She's out of her mind. She's frothing at the mouth. She's like, and she's yelling all these things, and he's just calm. He's just calm. He's talking about the Constitution, the presidential process, the electoral vote, and this woman's just screaming and just out of her mind. See, she needs a better cause. And if going to the post office, seeing a guy out front gets you going like that, man, you need a better, you need another reason for living. But that's what happens. We, we, get, we get out of our minds. And when we reject truth, we get out of our minds, and we don't think right, and we don't see things right. And we're often religious and not seeing things right. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. When your card is, oh, I'm a Sadducee, I don't believe the resurrection. These is people come and go. Let God be true, and every man a liar. He can make you mow the grass for seven years. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he can make you talk like a donkey. He can make a donkey talk. You do whatever he wants to do. Let God be true, and every man a liar. These guys are religious charlatans, and they come up with this preconceived conjecture that God is so twisted that somehow he'd have a woman marry seven brothers, and they're all trying to have kids through her. It's so demented. And look at Jesus' response. He said, are you not therefore mistaken? Verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scripture nor the power of God? People that don't know the scripture and they don't know the power of God. And they conjure up gods of their own mind and belief systems that are faulty and damnable and abominable before the living God to whom we'll all give an account. Jesus said in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, and you are therefore greatly mistaken. Jesus didn't pull any punches here, did he? No, no, no. He's not trying to win the popularity contest at the Temple Mount on this day. He just called it straight up. Look what he did. He called them out. You are therefore mistaken. They're mistaken because they didn't know the scriptures contextually. And by the way, 90% of the scripture is so easy to read at face value contextually. And if the 10% you have a hard time with bothers you, then you should focus on the 90% because the 90% that I do understand bothers me much more than the 10% that doesn't. And it should be the same with you. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. The secret things belong to the Lord. And there are things in scripture I don't get, I don't understand, but I don't let it bother me. I got my hands full just trying to forgive people not be bitter, and hope they forgive me for stupid things I've done. You are greatly mistaken because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. See, when people conjure up these kind of things, they, when people reduce God to a reflection of their lifestyle and how they live and how they're going to live with their seared conscience, when they do stuff like this, they reduce God and they, they, they mar the image of God into who they are. And they make God like them. God made me like this. 
God made this. God did this. To, and it's, it's, it's so demented and it's demonic and it's evil. And it won't stand in the next dimension. I can assure you of that. Oh, there's pressure from all sides to capitulate truth in this generation. But there's nothing new under the sun. All those guys back in the day, Hugh Latimer, those guys, they stood up to the Pope and the Catholic Church back in the day. They didn't capitulate anything. They held to the truth. Tyndale, all those guys, they fought for the scriptures. The pilgrims that came here for freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of faith. Yeah, it's no time to surrender. It's a time to stand strong. I'm not looking to make enemies. I'm not trying to offend people. But when you take Jesus and you reduce him to being as skewed as you are, and you try and make him the son of God in your image, with things that he clearly speaks against in his word, both in the Old and the New Testament, I'm just going to tell you, watch out. And you might hate me, and you might persecute me, and you might even kill me in this life, but I'm doing you a favor because I'm trying to save you for the next one. Because without repentance, there can be no salvation. And if we have sin that we don't think is sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You are mistaken. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. What, of all the things someone could say about your life, what could be worse than that? Especially if you go to church, and you're walking around a row being religious. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. Man, that is the worst. That is the worst. To be a religious person, and not know the scriptures, and not know the power of God, that's the worst. God forbid. And then he said, now concerning the resurrection, you don't even know what you're talking about. Because when you're raised up, marriage has nothing to do with it. You're like the angels. Now the angels are are beings from another dimension. So they're a higher being. And we get a different body. We get a glorified body. It's a completely different ballgame in the next dimension. So marriage has nothing to do with it. Marriage serves a purpose in time, space, and matter. But in eternity, we're glorified and we have glorified bodies. And it's just a different... Man, it's just a different ballgame altogether. So Jesus sets that straight. And then he says that, that he is the God of the living. He, you know, at the burning bush, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's present tense. They're all long gone. They've been dead for hundreds of years when, when the God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. But he says in the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's present tense. They're alive. They're not dead. They're, not, they're alive. They're, etern- they're in the realm of eternity. He's the God of the living. There is a resurrection. That's a great comfort. I'll tell you what, man. I've looked down. down, Man, I looked at a grave not long ago that was very deep on a graveside service. And, man, I I got like a a chill down my spine. I'd just done the graveside service, and I looked down that grave, and that hole was deep. And I'm claustrophobic. And the thought of me being alive in that casket, that deep in the grave, man, it, it gave me like a, and it just gave me boldness because right the moment I thought that, I was like, no, this person's not there. They're in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the bodies, be with the Lord. And they've got a glorified body and this is not their end. And whatever this is, God will figure that out when the dead are raised first and the trumpet sounds and we who are alive are caught up together within the air. Praise God for the resurrection. We just celebrated Easter. That tomb is empty. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Verse 28. Then one scribe came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it, this is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, 
Well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no one other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. This is a great story right here. Just because it's pretty cool how Jesus affirms that, yeah, the if you've got the vertical right to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the love of God is really in your life, then you're going to love your neighbor. You're going to care about people because God loves people. God so loved the world, he gave his son. And we love him because he first loved us. So when we receive that love of God through, given through Jesus Christ, and we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, he's put his love in our heart. Romans 5.5, 5, that he, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. So his love is working in us, and we are able to return that love that he has shown us, and we receive that when we receive Christ. And as we have that vertical love working, then it begins to work horizontally with the people around us, and we learn to love people how we otherwise maybe wouldn't love, and we get past our limited human love, and we have his love by the Holy Spirit working in our lives to love others. It's the simplest theology. Like I just said, the 10% of the Bible that's maybe difficult to understand, it's not even that. It's a large number to even say that, but it's all summarized in this. To love God and to love others. And if something's not working in your life, it's going to be one of these two things. That the love's not there for the Lord. The love's grown cold. Jesus said you've left your first love in the revelation there to the church of Ephesus. I mean, that we're receiving his love and we're responding to that love. And then we're going to see people the way he sees them and we're going to be filled with love. We're going to be compassionate, merciful, gracious people. I just love how Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom. It's funny because all these conflicts are pretty... They're a win or lose, but this one's kind of unresolved. You know, like, isn't just like, hey, you're not far from the kingdom. I always wonder what happened to this guy. Because Jesus didn't really reprove him. Like, Jesus actually took the time to answer his question. And then it says that Jesus saw he answered wise, and he goes, hey, you're not far from the kingdom. Well, he didn't really reprove him. It's all resolved. No one's leaving mad. He's like, hey, you're not far from the kingdom. Something like that. I don't know. It's, just a, it's a happy ending. It's kind of like a for further, further evaluation. And now... We get to verse 35 and we wrap it up. Then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how is it the scribes said that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is it he then is son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in the teaching, beware of the scribes in his teaching. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue, the best places at the feast, who devour widows' mites and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw two mites, which is makes a, a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So as we wrap up this chapter tonight, we have that famous passage where, again, it's in the other Gospels, that Jesus, by quoting uh, the Old Testament, the Lord said to my Lord, sit, verse 36, sit at my right hand till your enemies are your footstool, that clearly the descendant of David is greater than David. And that descendant is greater than David because he's not his son. He's the son of God. 
that's the context. So Jesus gives them something to think about. And in verse 37, it says, the common people heard him gladly. They were always looked down on by the religious leaders. So when Jesus is teaching stuff they can lay hold of, that's really simple, loving God, loving your neighbor, and not putting a burden and a yoke on them, they just loved it. Like the common people heard him gladly. Like Christ in our life should be appealing to the common people, to everyday people. Jesus is not complicated. We don't make him complicated. The way to heaven is not complicated. We don't make the way to heaven complicated. The word of God is not complicated. We don't make the word of God complicated. Jesus loves me, this I know. And the common people heard him gladly. But then he warned about these religious leaders who make things complicated. And, of course, all the conflicts have been with them. And he said they have a greater condemnation. And that's a pretty scary thought, verse 40, that those people who are religious, who put burdens on people, who deceive people, who teach falsely, every single one of them is going to receive greater condemnation. And, of course, that's serious for me in a sense of just being a pastor because James tells us the teachers have a greater accountability. But that I don't shrink back from the fear of that. Like, I just embrace that because I'm called to ministry. So that just challenges me to make sure that I've got the right context. I've been seeking the Lord. I'm ready to teach his word. Now, listen to studies in recent years that makes me want to just stay on point and not get off point and teach the Bible contextually correct and teach the Word of God. When I listened to the first study from Colossians chapter 1 a few weeks ago, I didn't like it. I mentioned this the other last Saturday. I was like, I don't like that. But, you know, I still taught the Bible. It's a 45-minute study. I taught the Bible. I taught it contextually. I taught all kinds of application. I just... I don't know. It's like I'm, I told Alex, I'm going to redeem it for the radio. Somehow we're going to redeem that first study. But I didn't, it just, it just, but I taught the Bible. If you're a motivational speaker, I said this, if you're a motivational speaker and you don't, you feel like you didn't motivate anybody, well, that's your problem. You just didn't have it. But you see, when I get up and I teach the Bible and I teach it contextually, like tonight, a whole chapter, I know God's going to honor his word. And I know it's fruit in your life and it's fruit in my life. And God's word does not return void. It's an easy game plan to not lose track of. Now this woman, there's great accountability. Now this woman, Jesus watched the treasury, and we, we close out tonight with her. He calls his disciples together and said, look, everyone's putting a lot of money. This is, this is impressive. They're putting a lot of money. But he said, hers is greater because they put out of abundance, and she in her poverty. She put in all of her livelihood. So I close with this thought. All in is always a high mark with the Lord. All in. And I say this all the time. It's the quality, not the quantity, of life. And it's what we do with what we have. That is the lessons from the parable of the minas and the talents. And it's all in. And this, there's, there's a lesson here. Because 10% of a whole lot is still 10% of a whole lot of your life. But all your life, if your life is one-tenth of what someone else's is, but if all your one-tenth of who you are, the totality of the 100% of who you are is all in, that is more commendable than a piece of your life. In other words, Jesus wants all the heart, not part of the heart. Jesus wants to be Lord of all because otherwise he's not Lord at all. She put in all. She was all in. Just all in. That's how I want to live our life for Jesus. All in. We, we tend to want to hold things back. We want, tend to want to rationalize things. There are things he'll do in our life to get our attention, to remind us it's all in. We want to be all in. As a former coach of elite athletes on the highest level, nothing brought me more joy than to see an athlete giving everything they had in preparation and in the, the battle. And whether we won or lost, I, I could rejoice as much as losing closely 
if, we, if we're just beat, we're just beat, and we can live with that. But when I could see someone give their very best, that was the best feeling you can ever have as a coach. When you saw someone all in, not holding back anything, and you just say, hey, we can live with that. When, just, I don't want to step into eternity and look back and say, man, I should have been all in, and neither do you. This is the time. This is the day. This is the season to be all in. All in. Quality. All in.